Hello coaches, we have a quick turnaround uh, this week on the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. Hopefully you listened to my conversation with Dash Connell, uh, but I thought this was an important call I had with Matt Hill and, and something I wanted to release uh, as soon as possible. So Matt Hill is the head men's coach at Arizona State University. He began his coaching career as a volunteer at Alabama, moved to the assistant coaching role at Mississippi State before taking over the program at the University of South Florida. There, he inherited a team with a losing record and four years later found themselves in the round of 16 at the NCAA tournament. After his success at USF, he was named the head coach of the newly reinstated men's program at Arizona State in 2016 and helped his team to an NCAA berth in their just their first year of competition. Matt is one of those rare coaches, I believe, who appear to excel in all areas of running a college tennis program. He not only has a clear vision for his program at ASU, but also has a vision for college tennis. Matt's insights and execution of marketing and fundraising are second to none. And I believe every college coach in the country can learn something from this conversation today. Coach Matt Hill, thanks for coming on the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. Yeah, Dave, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're we're just down the road from one another, but uh feels like we're a million miles with uh being sequestered where we are right now. But uh I hear you loud and clear and gonna get straight into these questions if that's okay. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, so you you inherited a losing program at the University of South Florida. You then four years later led them to the Sweet Sixteen. You also took over a reinstated men's program at Arizona State and made the NCAA tournament in your first year of competing. Um, so what are some of the steps that you took in those first three months of taking over these programs that you believe set you up for success moving forward? Um, yeah, I think I think the first one that any good leader does is, is they're going to cast a vision for kind of how they how they see uh, the program, you know, kind of in the mid long term range. And um, I think that really kind of allows the, the players or the coaching staff or everybody that's involved to understand what the expectations are and and what the culture will need to be in order to do that. And so um, I think having that vision kind of when you stop and close your eyes and think about it is is one of the main factors that a, a leader needs to have in order to kind of get people to rally around something, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a that was a big piece for me. Um, of course, hiring uh, my assistant coaches at both places that was really really important. Um, Brandon Wagner, I was super super fortunate to get to work with him for a long time at South Florida, and he was a huge huge piece in us being able to do what we did there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Michael Cockta here, same thing. Like just an incredible, you know, asset to me from the very beginning. So. You know, your staff is, is such a critical component of it. And then, you know, the last bit is, of course, the players. You know, I mean, we immediately dive heavy into the recruiting mm-hmm. and, um, you know, start looking for players that match up with that vision and culture that we have for the program. Because a lot of times when you're um, taking over a program that's struggling, um, the players you know, typically don't have that same mindset and maybe they aren't looking for that. You know, they weren't mm. recruited. They were, they weren't recruited by us. And, and we told, we tell the players right away that, you know, when we, when we've been at new programs that, Hey, you know, 
we get this might be a new change. And if this isn't something that you're on board for, that's fine. You know, we're happy to mm-hmm. help you find a different place. So I think probably those three areas, um, you know, setting the vision and the culture of what your expectations are and what you're looking to do and hiring staff and people to help you do that. And then, mm-hmm. of course, recruiting players that fit in for that, fit in to that type of um, that are on board with that vision and, and want to be around that type of culture. I think that's, you know, I don't know any other way to kind of start the process moving forward at least. Sure. And and what were some of the qualities that you were looking for in, in those assistant coaches? Uh, yeah, really guys that had played at a high level, um, guys that had played on teams um, in college that were highly successful. Um guys that I felt like could communicate well to the guys um, and had had kind of a teaching development mentality mm-hmm. um, because the programs that we've um, – part of the vision is it's a highly developmental space. Uh, we're looking for players that want that. And so, um, yeah, some competency in those areas. And then just kind of fit and feel with personality-wise with me and – and really kind of offsetting my strengths and weaknesses, you know, as, as a, as a leader myself, I don't want to hire someone that has a lot of the same strengths that I do. I'm mm-hmm. looking for someone that kind of offsets me in that sense. And then probably lastly, I would say is just someone that has the you know courage to speak up. You know, I don't want a yes man as an assistant. I want someone who is going to challenge me and question me and, I think differently than me so I can make sure that, you know, my ideas going forward are, have been challenged and tested and I, and I really believe in what I'm doing and, or, or adapt and and move to a better idea that somebody else has, you know? Mm -hmm. So those are some big, big factors for me when I'm looking at assistant coaches. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, so when you, when you took over at both USF and, and ASU, how do you think you were able to convince such accomplished players to believe in, in say, a losing program at, at South Florida and then a, a brand new program in ASU? Because you obviously did a great job recruiting in those early days, but it's, it's sometimes a tough sell. So you were obviously able to express your, your vision to these players uh, very eloquently and, and uh, have them believe in it. But, but, but what are some other areas you think you did well to, to convince these players to come? I mean, I think that is the area, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, there isn't, okay, yes, you, you, when you're re- recruiting for a university or for a business or whatever, I mean, you have to learn and know about your business or, or your university, like the strengths that it has. And every school is different. Every school has different strengths and different weaknesses. And, you need to know that, you know, you need to be able to answer those questions really well. Um, because there's a lot of great universities out there. There's a lot of great schools, um, and teams. And so, but it doesn't mean that it's the right fit for every kid. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, I think for us, since we weren't recruiting to a strong program or a program with had a lot of history to it tradition, you know, we have to recruit on what we believe is going to happen in the future, what our vision is. Um, and then you have to find players that are, will trust in your ability to, to execute that. And they want to be a part of that. And mm-hmm. so that's, you know, we lost a lot of recruits too, that, that didn't, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't that they didn't believe that we could do it, but that they didn't, 
you know, they wanted to go to something that was more um, established and they wanted to go to a top five team and know that, hey, this is what I'm getting and I'm going to have a shot at national championships. And it's it's, um, you know, it's not a hypothetical per se based on their track record. And, I, you know, so it's yeah, I mean, we we did well with some of the guys that we signed and we we used some of our strengths at South or not at South Florida. Oh, well, both, obviously. But at Arizona State, we used some of our strengths with the fact that we weren't competing the first year. You know, we were able to take recruits that mm-hmm. other programs wouldn't take because the players had to sit. So that's just us, you know, being creative and intellectual and thinking through things on how we can leverage our current situation to acquire the players we need to accomplish the tasks that we have in front of us and our goals. Um, and then South Florida, you know, we – Again, like we we went after guys that were kind of our fit. They loved tennis. They were super into the game and wanted to wanted to play after and didn't want to weren't looking to party and their social life wasn't their their main focus. And um, and yeah, we still again like we're not getting at these schools. We weren't recruiting, especially at South Florida. We weren't getting. I would say the the very top tier kids. I mean, we weren't getting the 10 ITF, 20 ITF, mm-hmm. you know, type of kids. I mean, we were, Roberto was 90 or a hundred ITF in juniors, but, but became one of the best players in college tennis through the system. Um, and so that was the same with Justin Roberts, who was 150 ITF and Vadim was 160 ITF. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, that, not to say they're not accomplished players. They absolutely are by all means, but, in the space that we're in, you know, they, when you really kind of look at the roster lineups to the top 10, 15 teams, I mean, we were behind a little bit, you know, but our culture and our training and all that made up for it. Okay. And, and so what lessons did you maybe learn? You, you played a uh, fair state, you, you went through their PTM program there. Um, and then you were a volunteer at Alabama, your assistant coach at, at Mississippi State. But what are some of the lessons you learned along the way that set you up to have, um, you know, kind of, I don't want to say immediate success as, as a head coach, but were able to to build programs relatively quickly. What what are some of those lessons you learned? Oof, yeah, I mean, there's a, a ton, obviously. I mean, you're talking about, a, um, you know, an eight, well, seven years at Mississippi State in Alabama and then two years at Ferris State when I was studying. So, uh, I mean, I would say I learned, I learned a lot at Alabama from Billy Pate and Lee Nickel. I mean, Billy was an incredible networker and, and was incredible with his relationships with his players, which uh, really, to me, I saw firsthand how the players would, you know, give more of themselves to the program due to their relationship with Billy and and just how much he really cared for them. Um, And then Lee Nickel was just an incredible coach, just super disciplined with the guys, really kind of squeezed the the most out of those guys every minute he could, even though he was the assistant coach. Um, He really took a leadership role in, in the discipline of the group and the, and a lot of the specificity on court and, um, yeah, so I learned a ton uh, from both of those guys. And then going to Mississippi State and working with Pear, um, I, l- I learned a ton during my time at Mississippi State about recruiting from uh, from Pear and from also a track coach that I was a roommate with who was 
I had head track coach at Virginia just recently. Hmm. Um, and he was an unbelievable recruiter. So I learned a ton from those guys kind of on the recruiting process. And, and then probably one of the big things from pair was just training. You know, I think there's kind of three things we do as coaches, as it relates to our players on the court is, you know, we're training them, we're teaching them and we're coaching them in different times, different roles. And Pear is an incredible trainer, no doubt. The environment that um, he creates out there and, and the demands of every player giving his best consistently on a session-to-session basis was really, really impressive. And it was something that I had hadn't experienced before. And so was able to learn a lot and, and during the five years with him and, and learned a lot from the players, of course, too. I mean, you, Mm -hmm. as a coach, (laughs) you learn, you know, you know, I'm not just learning from the the staff around me. I'm, I'm learning from my guys as well constantly. So, um, but yeah, the culture at Mississippi state was, was really special. You know, you had, um, that's just a, a different environment from a training aspect that was, that was really new to me. Okay. Very good. And then, so you, you go on to be a head coach and, and you, you've really demonstrated that you're able to recruit very good players. You're able to develop players, uh, but you also prioritize the marketing of your program. You prioritize fundraising. Um, most coaches I know excel in, in one or two of these areas, but not all four. So how do you believe you're, you're juggling all these priorities and, and how are you excelling in all, all four areas? Yeah, I mean, I think the first is just putting really, really good people around you. I mean, I think that's, there's no way that I can do all that, uh, by myself, you know? Um, so I, at South Florida, Gary Needleman was our, was our volunteer assistant and he was just incredible at, taking a lot off of my plate and allowing me to focus on the areas that I believe were like the most impactful areas. I think, you know, efficiency is obviously one of the key factors, you know, the, the amount of slack that we have in our days um, as leaders, even at the highest level of CEOs is, is I mean, there's a lot of research out there showing yeah, CEOs of major corporations, the best of the best leaders are, have about 20 hours of slack in their, in their weekday still. Hmm. And it's just really, you know, keeping your mind on the areas that are really going to move the needle for, for the program and, and not getting, you know, caught up in the, I like to say the thick of thin things from Stephen Covey, obviously. Hmm. Um, but yeah, just really, just really putting your time into the areas that are, that, only you can execute um, and then trying to delegate and give the other areas to people that can't execute on those those kind of main main areas that affect the, your bottom line, whatever your bottom line is. you know mm-hmm. and for me, for me, the bottom line has always been the recruiting, um, the developing of the kids and the team, and then, also the uh, the match day experience Mm. you know like i want i want you know at mississippi state i was able to experience um we we did a lot my alabama we tried to get the marketing going but i i I learned about what not to do at alabama i would say and at mississippi state we kind of really got the marketing going into where you know there were matches that you couldn't get a seat 
wow. at the Mississippi State facility, which is a it's a big facility. I mean, it seats probably over fifteen hundred people, mm. and you couldn't get seats there. And I saw firsthand how that changed. Um, not only the match day environment, but the training environment, you know, the guys, when they're training on a Tuesday, uh, afternoon, it's just not a, it's not just a Tuesday afternoon. I mean, we had Tennessee on Friday and we had 1500 people that were going to be there. And, and it's amazing how it impacted the way that the guys trained and prepared for our, Hmm. our weekend matches. Um, Um, so that always stuck with me, um, kind of moving forward. And so that, experience that you get when you have a full stadium is just wildly different than when there's 20 people in the stands. I mean, we would travel to different schools in the SEC where there's 20 people in the stands and the guys would, after the matches, be like, this, you know, this sucks. You know, this is not, this isn't like, yeah, we won, but I mean, mm-hmm. that's not, that's not that fun. That wasn't that fun, you know? Right. And so I didn't, I don't ever want, I never wanted my players and my teams to have that experience particularly at home where i can control that Hmm. so what what are some of the things you're you're implementing at at your home matches that you believe are helping to engage um the tennis public or or fans of the the university or or just uh general college sports fans in general What, what are some things you think you're doing well um, yeah, I think each school is different. Mississippi State is in a rural, small town. Mm-hmm. So the, the strategy around uh, marketing there is different than, say, a South Florida, which is in Tampa, or ASU that's in Phoenix. Um, but first is, uh, is understanding that market, right? Like you have to know like who your, who, who your target market is and who you're going after. That's the mistake I made at Alabama. Mm-hmm. We just started running – we were just doing random tennis clinics and all these little one-off events that had, there was no direction and really vision to how we were going to acquire a customer. And so, um, that really was a waste of, I mean, for the most part, the time spent, there wasn't the value there. Um, but at Mississippi state, we had a sorority, a sorority challenge where we went my the pair and I would go and meet with the president and vice president of the sorority houses and they would pick a match to host and they would pick a theme and we would help them with anything they needed to like execute their theme. And so they would, they would market that and, Hmm. and, and they would, yeah, they would just pick matches and they would each pick one match to host. And so then we would give like a huge prize at the end of the year, we would give like a TV for their home, for their, their sorority house, like mm-hmm. a, some lavish gift. I'm not big into trinkets and little things that matches. Um, and then we also had an attendance challenge where they, they would sign in, whether it was your, it, whether it was the match that you were hosting or whether it was a different match, all, all Greek members would sign in and then whatever house had the most attendance by the end of the year also got a huge gift for their house. So that was wildly successful at Mississippi state. Uh, we didn't have that type of Greek life at, at in Tampa, but there was a huge tennis community. So we had to learn about that community. Like where are the, you know, public facilities, private facilities, country clubs, who the directors are, have their contact information, um, make sure we're, you know, the awareness, a lot of reason there's no one at college tennis matches is no one's aware of it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so that's your first step. And so we had to, it was a little different approach there, much more like it is in Phoenix here. You just have to, we had to learn what, what is the Phoenix tennis community as a whole. And then, okay, what are our strategies then on how we're going to attack those various different clubs and groups and, and high school teams and all these things mm -hmm. to get them to come out to the matches um, and how we're going to communicate that too. And, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's a, I mean, that's a, probably a whole call in itself mm -hmm. on how we, how we kind of attack mm -hmm. a city, a city this size with this many people playing tennis and, and, um, yeah, we're still learning. One of the things that's been really successful here at Arizona state is the ball kid program. Yeah. Um, we do it for every match and unless it's a match that's during school. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, when you have 20, 30 kids out there, I mean, those kids have to be brought by parents. So you immediately have, I don't know, 75 to hundred people in the stands before the match has even started. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's definitely different ways, different programs. We have a VIP program area here where donors can have food and alcohol during the matches and they pay for that premium seating. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of yeah. ways that we're trying to attack that question. Yeah. Um, and, and I might take you up on, on doing another call on, on that topic alone. And a big reason I wanted to talk to you was that, you, you know, you not only have a vision for your program, but you have a vision for, for how college tennis could, could look. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I left college tennis three and a half years ago and, and I come back to find coaches and the ITA and, and various committees, you know, still debating things like scoring formats, pro tennis, what to do with the NCA individual tournaments and, and other topics that we've been debating for a really long time that, that aren't necessarily uh, really getting to grips or to terms with, with how we're moving our sport forward. Um, so do you, do you believe that we as coaches have lost sight of the bigger picture and, and what is that bigger picture? I mean, look, I think everyone has their own picture in their mind, right? And it's not the same for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get a lot of those differing opinions. But I think for me, when it comes to college tennis as a whole, you know, one of the questions I ask myself is, I mean, you have to, you have to begin with the end in mind. And the question I ask is, what is the end? Mm -hmm. Like what? when people close their eyes and see college tennis in 10 or 20 years from now, what do they see? And I don't, for me, I don't see, Oh, well, the individual championships is earlier in the year. I mean, I don't, for me, I don't care. Like it's irrelevant, you know, like, mm -hmm. yeah, you can move it and, and the guys wouldn't be tired from the team event and maybe the, you know, whatever there's, there's a million nuances to it, but that, to me, that doesn't move the needle, you know, but when I close my eyes and see college tennis in 10, 20 years, I see, you know, college match days on the tennis channel, which Virgil Christian has been an incredible, um, you know, uh, just person to really push kind of that idea forward and really execute, execute really well on it. It's been really impressive to see. Uh, and, uh, but I see, yeah, I see, college tennis being all over the tennis channel. What a great platform we have now. I don't see why, um, with that platform that 
that couldn't be the norm, not just in Orlando, but on, can, on, on areas all over the United States where the production quality can be set up mm-hmm. to a standard that Tennis Channel would be happy with. Um, I see stadiums that are full, you know, like just, just, it's an event. You know, when I think of a tennis, a college tennis match, I think of an event. I think of kids running around all over the place with rackets and playing on small little courts behind and premium seating where business owners and the CEOs wives that play at the country clubs, mm-hmm. you know, they're all hanging out and socializing and having drink and food. And, you know, it's, to me, it's, it should be an event. Um, and so I think, you know, we're not on the path right now for that. Uh, I don't see, I, I think there are small pieces and coaches, some coaches doing a good job of that, but as a whole, holistically, uh, we're not moving in that direction. And that's, um, yeah, it's it's disappointing, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with those, being events are, are, are like you said home matches becoming these these events you've, you've talked about before the possibility of of tennis programs charging an admission fee for for home matches so why do you believe that's even possible for tennis programs and and why should co- tennis coaches be be maybe thinking in these terms yeah i mean it's it's definitely it's it's not 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 even possible it's i mean we control I mean, unless your AD says no, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there, there's no reason to not be charging for our events. We're devaluing our, from a marketing standpoint, we're doing ourselves a huge disservice by not charging for our events because you've, we're, we're, we're putting no value on the event. And there, I, I understand a lot of people believe that, you know, we get more people if we don't charge, but if you really do your homework on marketing and, and, other sports and things like that. That's just, just not true. Um, you know, we're, we're, we have to, for a multitude of reasons, charge for the event. I mean, it's when you close your eyes and see the event the way I do, that's not a free event. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I mean, I, I don't, you wouldn't think of baseball or, or basketball or football or these other sports to be, you, it would be the weirdest thing ever if they were free to go to, you know, I mean, it's just not possible. It's not possible for the event to function the way it functions without some level of revenue component to it, right. you know? And so that's not even, that's not even possible. And if you talk to your, I like to look at the other sports, um, or other sports on a global scale to c- figure out how to move things forward because looking just internally at college tennis, that's, that's silly. Like I'm not going to learn anything new from that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you, if you talk to your baseball coaches, they'll tell you that 15, 20 years ago, they, they didn't charge for college baseball. And it was, it, you know, what was happening is that people, they were, they were, you know, my baseball coach called it the free puppy syndrome. They were trying to give every, anything away free <laughs> to get people to come. Mm-hmm. And it and it wasn't working, and it wasn't until that they said across the board, "Okay, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to charge." And all of a sudden, now you see college baseball what it is today. It's it's you know it's way more consistent with what you would see from a pro baseball. You know, it's a it's sure. a there's there's suites and there's you know you know concessions and normal stadiums full of people, and it's just a that's what people expect when they go to baseball. They don't. Ex- 
you know, it's, mm-hmm. and so I think we just haven't, I think people are scared of, of taking that leap because they're afraid they're going to lose fans. And I would argue that we don't have that many fans to begin with right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got, when somebody has 500 people at a match, it's like, wow, that's incredible. And it's like, no, it's not. I mean, that's right. in my mind. And it, and it wouldn't take that much to get us to, you know, the, if, if we can break 2000 fans a match, we're on par for being one of the top sports within your college, college athletic departments. I mean, you're going to be up there with, uh, softball and gymnastics and, and women's basketball. And Mm -hmm. if you can get into those, you know, a couple thousand fans consistently and now, now, okay, now you're, you're putting food on the table and you're a relevant, a relevant sport. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's no reason, I mean, you're seeing it done at the, the U S open and the slant, like these, how much has U S open changed in the last 15 years? I mean, it's unbelievable. And so, I mean, yeah, no, you, you make some, some great points. And, uh, I think I told you that I had to pay $5 to get into my son's junior varsity high school soccer game. And, that wasn't a very entertaining game <laughs> and then $15 for the, for the high school playoffs. Um, so, uh, people are willing to, to pay some money to go to these events, but, um, no, you make some fantastic points and, and I hope, uh, coaches, um, yeah, like you said, think, think outside of college tennis, look outside of college tennis to see what other sports and other organizations are doing and uh, how they're making it work. So with obviously the current circumstances we find ourselves in with, with the coronavirus and um, eligibility and the potential for football not being played in the fall, um, there's obviously going to be budget cuts coming, coming coaches way, whether they realize it or not. Um, what, what, how can coaches maybe get out in front of those impending budget cuts, what solutions should they be providing to their associate ADs or ADs, you know, sooner rather than later? I mean, I think having a plan first is, is one of the best things you can do. And again, I think when you say get ahead of it, I think that's the smart thing to do. I mean, you, you come, you come with a plan before they come to you with cuts and all of a sudden here's a coach that's actually, thinking about us and our budget and how we operate. And cause I, I would say a lot of ADs and, and CFOs within the departments don't feel that way. You know, we're constantly asking for more and more and more. And I think the more fiscally responsible and intelligent we can be, um, you know, the more well-received that will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's really threefold in my mind on how you can, um, impact the bottom line for the department as a whole is, is of course being intelligent about, um, how you could save money in, in the current op budget that you have, like, are there ways for you to, um, um, get creative with how, where your spending is at, whether that's, you know, the altering scheduling to where you can play more matches in a weekend on a road or, or maybe when you're traveling, you can get in touch with your development office and find donors in the area that you can stay with instead of staying with at hotels. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when you look, I mean, I was talking with Ty earlier today and 
and the really the op budget really consists. He he said this, which I totally agree with. Our op budget really consists of three things. I mean, in, in major areas, it's travel, recruiting, and um, equipment. Right. And so, finding ways to um, still execute in the areas you need to to be successful. But let's say if I don't have to stay at hotels and I can stay at you know these three donors' houses I'm at. Might be might not be a bad idea for multi for a multitude of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. For a multitude of reasons that uh, would make sense. So just just looking through things as a as a every school is different and and trying to be creative with how you can offset certain costs. I think would be incredibly well received right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two is revenue generation. Like I think you know. That's the area that we were just talking about. How can you do? I think that we're going to make a boatload of money uh, charging five to fifteen dollars a head to get through the door. No, I don't. Um, but having courtside seating or a VIP area that you charge, you know, two thousand dollars a seat for the season. Um, that's you know right in front of the action, and you can go to your donors. I mean, yeah, that's that's significant. You know, mm-hmm. when Ty and I, when Ty and I were talking earlier today, I mean, he's got, he's got courtside seating there on the indoors. Those are circular round tables that view court one. And he's got over $2 billion of money sitting at those tables. Wow. Is that, uh, I assume you're referring to Ty Tucker at Ohio state. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And so the, just those nine tables fundraise 13 and a half million dollars for, uh, his new indoor facility. Just those nine tables. (laughs) And so you have guys that are incredibly talented and smart doing this already, but on a wide scale, like, are we viewing our product as an event that is sellable? Um, And do do we have the infrastructure in place to to do that? Like, are we setting it up to do that? Mm -hmm. Are there, do you have, did you, you know, he had to buy what ten tables and some bar stool. I mean, do you have the infrastructure set up to be able to execute something like that first and foremost? And then, okay, what's your plan in, in doing so? You know, mm-hmm. and then the, I would say the last area, of course, is is that component, the fundraising component. Like, you know, how connected are you with the people that are? Do you have people that are involved in your program that are offsetting? your bottom line or allowing you to move things forward if need be, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, our wrestling coach here is just so impressive. I mean, he has like a board of directors of like, you know, nine guys that he meets with that have a voice in the program, but they have a, that they're giving, you know, hundreds of thousands every year to offset kind of what he, the budget line item he believes he needs to win national championships which is not the same budget line item as, as his op budget, you know? Mm. And, you know, he has a town hall meeting with those board of directors and anybody else involved in the program once a year. And I mean, there are guys in different, you know, different spaces that are doing a really, really good job with the relationships of people that are having a vested interest in the program and golf does a, I think you and I were talking about that golf does a fantastic job of that with, you know, taking donors on trips with them to, you know, golf, obviously they play these invites and tournaments in these just high affluent areas like Hawaii and Cabo and these donors travel with them and they build these relationships with them that it's just, 
you know, so far reaching than at least anything that I've done or experienced. And so, I mean, I'm aware that tennis coaches, some coaches do a great job of that as well, but across the board, I think that's of course an area that is a critical area. It could be a difficult area come the next, sure. depending on the economic climate over the next, you know, 12 months or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when it, when it's those times, the donors, you know, can be tricky. But, right. Um, right. And then how, how did you go about identifying these individuals at, at both USF and, and ASU? Um, I, I, I don't believe you necessarily had any previous connection to these places or, you know, right. um, you know you're kind of brand new to, to both communities. So what was, again, coming back to my first question about what you kind of did in those first three months, maybe what did you do in the first year to identify and, and build relationships with those individuals? Yeah, we, uh, it's twofold. It's one, you immediately reaching out to the alumni base and getting to know them a little bit and, and trying to network through that space. And then of course they can plug you in even further to the community as a whole. Um, and then I would say two is, yeah, getting to know the clubs and the directors of the areas and, even, you know, we, what we would do at both places is we would practice offsite mm-hmm. at some of those places and that would open up relationships and doors to people that we would never, um, we would never meet. And I think that's something that golf does. Again, I look at other sports a lot. Golf does a great job of that. You know, they don't play the same course every day. They would, they wouldn't improve. So they're, they're forced to go out into the community and play at different golf courses. And as a result of that, they meet so many different donors and people, and that's why they do a better job on a, on a broad scale than we do. And so we've kind of adopted that mentality and we, we will have practice at different facilities around town and, and set those things up. And is it more work? Yeah, it's more work, but I mean, when you meet, when you're meeting people that can really help you move the needle, it's, it's, you know, it's time well spent. Mm-hmm. And what are, what are some of may, maybe those specific line items that uh, traditionally people have been willing to give for in your experience? Is there something that is an easier ask than, than others? I assume, you know, asking for, for uh, tennis shoes maybe is, is uh, somebody be like, well, you, you know, the, the athletic department can take it, care of that. But is there, are there other things that have, have, uh, you know, traditionally been easier for, for you to ask for? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's definitely a pain point there with different items that, you know, some people, I think they just feel like, oh, well, the department should be taking care of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've had success uh, with meals, I've had success with things that kind of are above and beyond, like our tennis analytics program that we do with Warren, um, mm. or or things that we actually need for the facility per se. Like, sp- I think when you can give specificity to the, a donor's money, and they know exactly where it's going, the, the they're way way more inclined mm. to uh, get involved. You know, um, so. I think that's, that's, but I, at the same time, I think each person, as you get to build that relationship with them, you can tell kind of where their heart is at with, um, what is, what's important to them. You know, I have one guy who's really, really big in to the academic side of the guys being successful and all that. And so we've 
you know, he's more involved with our funding, our summer school, mm. you know? Um, so it's just matching, matching those desires up if the, if the person has those. But, um, I think where the, I would say wrestling and golf here do a better job than I do is they just know how much they need above and beyond their budget. And so they, the, the, the donors know what kind of know what it's going to, but they just say, look, I need a hundred K a year. I need 200 K a year mm-hmm. above and beyond my budget in order to compete at the very, very top. Will you help specifically there? And, and that seems to be enough, you know, enough information to know sometimes like, okay, yeah, I want to, I want, I want to be up here. And if that's what you think you need, boom, you know, yeah. we're involved. Mm. So, yeah. So it's, it's again, finding the, the, the person's interests, what, yeah, uh, yeah, what they're maybe passionate about, where they can see they're, they're helping and, and being directly, being able to, to show them directly how it's, how it's influencing your program and, and bringing it forward. So, um, I mean, just, just kind of, uh, just leaving the, I guess, coaches with, with a general message. You, again, you're, you're thinking about, uh, how you're marketing your program, how you're fundraising. Um, you know, it's something that I, I know weighs heavy on, on coaches' minds. Um, you know, once they get into uh, the profession, I think early on, um, coaches are attracted to college coaching because they want to work with players and build culture and develop, you know, good tennis players and, and have these relationships with the players and set them up for for life after college. But they they kind of I think lose track of of all these other things that are are vitally important uh, for college coaches in in order to have success and bring the sport forward and make tennis important within their athletic department. So how how would you maybe what message would you have for coaches to help them maybe make that switch from thinking purely about maybe recruiting and development and and switching more attention and prior making kind of the fundraising and the marketing more of a priority. Is there any message or lesson you could leave us with? Well, I think, I mean, look, I think all of us, you know, when you're in a leadership capacity, you want to leave something better than you found it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when you're, when you, when you stop and you think about your efforts and what you're pouring into your guys and, and recruiting new players, which is the lifeblood of, of course, of the success of the program, you know, you, to me, I always wanted to create a program and not just a really high level team Mm. because that team moves on. And then if I move on that, then that can, I mean, depending on the tradition and culture, it can kind of go away. And I think where you develop a, there are, there are schools and there are people in our past of college tennis history that you think of that did way more than that. And they did way more than, um, the, the, the developing and the recruiting. And it had a drastic impact on college tennis as a whole, like the Dick Goulds and, um, you know, uh, you know, Dan, Dan over at Georgia and these guys that really like, um, just had a bigger vision for it than just their team. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think if, 
look, things have changed. <laughs> things have changed. 15 years ago when, when I was at Alabama and Billy was the head coach, he was making, I don't know, $50,000, $60,000 a year as the head coach at Alabama. Mm -hmm. When the TV deals got into place, this whole thing has changed drastically. And so to think that, you know, you're going to be making what probably less than one or 2% of the American population makes, and you're just going to coach eight players and recruit one or two players a year. <laughs> I don't know. To me, that's not enough. I mean, I don't think that's realistic. I think you, mm -hmm. I think we've got to bring more value to the table than that personally. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great message. And, um, Matt, I, I appreciate your time today. This, this was great. We got into some important topics here. And, and like I said, this is why I wanted to speak with you now because, uh, you know, coaches are, uh, like you said, think things are going to change. The status quo is not uh, going to be what uh, it has been for the last uh, several years. And, and the more we can prepare our coaches for that, the better. So thank you for, uh, for your input today. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks for having me on. Okay. Thanks, Matt. We'll see you soon. Yes, sir. Coaches, thanks for listening. Uh, I hope you got something out of that uh, conversation with Matt. I think it's an important conversation. I hope it's, um, you know, will spark some thinking for you guys. And uh, as you uh, figure out how you're going to deal with uh, the months to come and, and some uh, probably budget cuts coming your way. So uh, if you can get out in front of it, like Matt says, um, you know, think about what that might look like. So best of luck and uh, look forward to chatting again with you guys soon.